Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk with Peter Clark, former Chief Inspector of Prisons in England and Wales. He reflects on his five years in this important role and on how the Inspectorate adapted its approach to respond to the challenges of the pandemic and to ensure that their vital work was able to continue. I'm Peter Clark uh, and I was the Chief Inspector of Prisons from the beginning of February 2016 uh, until the end of October 2020. So nearly nearly five years. And in that time, Peter, may I ask, do you know how many prisons ministers you met during your tenure? Uh, yes, I do. There, there were, during that time, there were five secretaries of state and four prisons ministers. Okay. And uh, there was a bit of an overlap because, of course, Robert Buckland was for a short while prisons minister before becoming secretary of state. Right. And also, I have to say congratulations on um, finally achieving your retirement, because this is the second time you've come on the podcast. And the last time you were just about to retire for the second time, I think, and, and it didn't happen. And then it didn't happen again. But now it has happened. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> does, does it feel good to have, have retired or are you missing the role? Uh, I think I'll, I'll, I'll miss my colleagues, certainly. I, I, was, I was very lucky to have some wonderful colleagues uh, uh, at the inspectorate. Uh, who, uh, when, when I said goodbye to them a couple of weeks ago, yeah, I, I, I was very completely uh, serious with them when I said that they should be proud to be associated with the inspectorate, and it's what they've made. They've made it a, a confident organisation um, that, that's clear in what its mission is, uh, that it's uh, an, an inspector of facts, as it were, not an, an NGO. Um, and they're very determined to fulfil that role uh, and they should be very proud of what they've achieved. And do you feel you achieved what you set out to do? Uh, well, I, I think that uh, what I set out to do was basically to follow up what the um, National Audit Office said in 2015 that all in, uh, independent inspectorates and regulators should look to be doing, which is to try to assess their impact uh, and try to increase it. And I, and I hope that's uh, what, what we managed to do um, over the years that I was there. Certainly in terms of the independence of the inspectorate, there was never any serious challenge to it during that time. And, and that's because I think there was a pretty broad recognition that actually um, we were doing what, fulfilling our function, which is being independent and reporting exactly what we found. 
Right. So then when it comes down to any particular um, indicators going up or up or down, so take, you know, the usual ones of self-harm and suicide, which were going up in the main before COVID and certainly have started going up even more because of the regime restrictions. Um, I suppose that's not really your remit, is it? Because you provide the facts, but then it's up to other people to sort of act on that. Is that correct? Uh, it, it is to an extent, yes. And I suppose when you start delving into why are things happening, then you're sort of beginning to push at the boundaries of, of, of an inspectorate, inspectorate's role. But, but I took the, the view very early on that actually it wasn't really sustainable just to say these are the bare facts without asking the question, why are things happening or not happening? And that sometimes takes you into areas such as leadership and management uh, and a, a whole range of things, uh, which traditionally we shied away from. But I was very keen that we should look at these because I don't think you can just trot out a fact and then not, not offer any explanation as to, at all as to why it's happening. So we did start to move a little bit into leadership and management, but, but only insofar as it related to outcomes. We, we, I was very clear that we weren't a bunch of management consultants. Uh, and we didn't sort of say this is how you should manage. We, we tried to say this is what you should achieve through effective leadership and management. Yeah, because I imagine it's key to sort of try and work out if the data that you're collecting, if the bad indicators are always going up um, and if or if lots of good indicators are sort of also increasing, you know, I, is it important? I would imagine it's important to know why things are getting better or why things are getting worse. I, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's essential and it sometimes puzzles me that I don't think that question is asked often enough. Um, that, that there's a, it seems to me sometimes within the prison service there's a, an obsession with data and they're very proud about the fact that they are data-driven and evidence-based as they express it. Uh, but actually, I think very often you need to get behind that data and to ask some much more probing questions. One of the things that's always uh, surprised me slightly is the variation in performance across establishments in, in the prison estate. You get enormous variations. Uh, and then sometimes when we found really quite concerning, troubling things, it seems to have taken the prison service by surprise. And I can never understand why that's the case. Hmm. And you didn't work that out during your time? Uh, I, I don't think I ever got to the bottom of it no. completely. But um, so, some things that did surprise me was that you, you have a very hierarchical, structured organisation. You have governors and then you have prison group directors and executive directors and then you have headquarters and the director general and on to the permanent secretary and so on. And trying to understand why it was that such a, a stru tightly structured organisation should be surprised by utterly appalling things happening in some of their establishments uh, was was baffling. And I, I did struggle at times to work out, well, what is the role of these various levels of management? What do they actually contribute? And I was frequently told, well, there's a lot of assurance within the system. Um, and I came to the conclusion that actually quite often that assurance was about assuring their processes rather than about assuring outcomes. So to take a, a, a simple example, ACT processes, if, if people are particularly vulnerable and need support, as you're aware, you know, the ACT forms are filled up. 
very often it seemed to me that the act of filling up the form uh, was as important as the eventual outcome within yes. the culture of the service. And I think that's something that needs to be to be got away from. I, the prison group directors I frequently found were completely taken by surprise by what was happening in, in the comparatively small numbers of prisons for which they were responsible. That uh, I, I couldn't understand. Why, if they went into the prisons on a regular basis, could they not see uh, with their experienced eyes what we as an inspectorate could see during the comparatively short time that it takes to inspect a prison? Do you think... Then, therefore, because, I mean, if we were just going to be really honest about it, it either means they're not going to the prison or they're going straight to the governor's office for a cup of tea and then straight back out the front door. Well, I don't know. And I, I, I never like generalising because that's um, not usually very helpful. No. And there are some prison group directors I know who really do taste and smell the environment that they're responsible for, they get out there into the prison. Absolutely, and credit where credit's due. I yeah, suppose it was absolutely. more on the kind of, you know, where it's not happening. We must be bold in being honest about why it's not. Yes. Uh, I remember one particular example. It was one of the more notorious inspections during my time. Uh, where the prison was was missing about four or five hundred windows. This place was in a terrible state. Yes, I know the prison you're talking of. And it was absolutely ghastly. And the prison group director turned up there and sort of cheerily greeted me and asked if everything was okay. And I had to say to him, well, I'm afraid it's not. You know, I've never seen conditions like this. They're appalling. Uh, now that strikes me as something fundamentally missing. If I, with my untrained prison's eye, because I'm not a prisons professional by any means, can see things that are just so obviously wrong. Why cannot somebody who's vastly experienced in the management of prisons see the same things? Well, I think that probably touches on one of the key elements of um, your role and your team's role. You know, it's sort of fresh eyes, isn't it? And I think, you know, in any institution, people become desensitised to the point where they almost become blind. Um, you know, I see it myself within the sort of prisons. And and I'm always conscious that I need to recognise that in myself as well. You know, when I'm in different prisons and I go, oh, that's not so bad, but I'm maybe with someone who hasn't been in a prison before and they're utterly traumatised by actually what they've seen and what they've heard, even if it's been a, you know, a good straightforward day in a prison. Um, but I imagine that's quite a sort of key part of your role is providing those fresh eyes. Well, I, I think that's right. And I think you're absolutely right about people who are working in those establishments sometimes can get inured or conditioned to what's going on around them. And uh, I frequently told the story of the Liverpool inspection back in 2017, when looking at all the gullies that were full of rubbish and rats and goodness knows what, um, saying to uh, quite a senior officer who was there, well, you know, when are you going to get these gullies cleared out? Uh, and it was explained to me that apparently uh, they were so bad and it was such a health and safety issue that they were going to have to get specialist contractors in. And I said, so what you're telling me is that you've allowed this place to become so dirty that you can't clean it. Uh, and he shrugged his shoulders and said, yes, we're not really very good at hygiene here, are we? Um, oh. Now, that's an example of people, I think, be becoming used to completely unacceptable conditions. And I don't know why or how that happens. To me, that's a clear issue about local leadership yeah. uh, getting a grip. But from the inspectorate's point of view, uh, it's important, I think, that we have a mix of, of people with different backgrounds, as we do. We have people who have worked in prisons, 
um, but we have people who have worked in probation and psychologists, educationists, people who have worked in NGOs, you know, a huge range of backgrounds. And I think that's really important because uh, exactly as you describe, there are fresh pairs of eyes there. Uh, but I do value very much the colleagues that we have uh, there who have worked in prisons because um, they can walk into a prison and within a few yards, so they can sort of tell what they're going into. They can get a sense, a yeah. sort of second sense of uh, that this place is not being well run. Just the way the gate operates very often tells them something's amiss or, or conversely that something's going well. Exactly. And you are probably, I imagine, the only chief inspector who's worked during and through the time of a pandemic? Uh, I think so. Although, I mean, obviously, prisons are, are well used to uh, dealing with outbreaks of infection and they're, they're very good at that. Um, uh, but yes, in terms of the full scale pandemic, I think I'm, <laughs> I'm in fact, I'm 100% sure I'm the only one who's had to work through anything like uh, the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, yeah. Uh, indeed, it applies to the whole of the country, doesn't it? And how have things been for you um, since, I guess, we're going back to sort of late February, March, aren't we now? Yes. Well, it's it's been a, an interesting journey because when things were locked down at the very beginning in March, um, very quickly things moved to the point where we had to say that we were suspending our inspection program, uh, the full inspection program. But it seemed to me very clear that whatever else happened, we couldn't just walk away from prisons and other places of detention and leave them on their own, that we had to find a way of doing whatever we could um, to fulfil, apart from anything else, the UK's international obligations to provide independent scrutiny of places of detention. So we started working straight away, and I was probably a little bit taskmasterish with my team about we've got to find a way of getting back into prison safely, obviously, uh, but to provide at least some level of scrutiny and assurance and reassurance about what's happening, uh, because it was quite clear that we were going to be the only people doing so. So we, we, we set out on that path, and you know, I'm very proud of the fact that on the 21st of April, we started our first short scrutiny visits. And how did they differ? Well, they were very different indeed. We, a normal inspection, as you know, the first weeks we, we send in a team of researchers uh, to do survey work, and then the second week the full um, team of inspectors, including colleagues from Ofsted and the Care Quality Commission, come with us, uh, and uh, we, we carry out the full inspection. So it's a two-week process with up to as many as 20 people involved. This clearly wasn't going to work uh, in the during a pandemic, and so we um, set about devising a methodology where we could get perhaps as, as few as two inspectors in just to look at some key areas. We, we cut down um, from the, the normal range of things we look at, just looked at some key stuff around prisoners' rights, safety, health, uh, and so on, and um, did that and uh, developed that then eventually into... Uh, scrutiny visits, as we called them, rather unimaginatively, uh, following on from short scrutiny visits. That's what it says um, on the tin. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so we, and then that now is a slightly larger group of inspectors, but we were very uh, sure that we must do everything safely, um, that we shouldn't be a distraction from the essential work of the people running prisons uh, in, in these really difficult times. But we were absolutely clear that we had a, a clear duty to be in prisons as soon as we possibly could 
to provide that important independent voice because there's none other. And what did you find and, you know, how were things? Because we on the outside and even sort of people like me who work on the inside and out, um, it's been very difficult to really hear or get to know sort of, you know, what really is going on. We know that regimes were shut down, um, which is totally understandable to try and sort of contain the virus and stop it spreading. And it sounds like it's been really rather successful. But of course, um, you know, the knock-on consequences are the mental health problems, children not coming in to see their parents. So how did your visits differ from the beginning where it sounded to me like, prisoners sort of understood that there was something bigger going on than just the, the usual prison politics. And so how did it differ from the first few months to the last few months? It changed completely, I think, in, in, in the, what, the six months, uh, seven months since uh, the lockdown started. To begin with, I think it's absolutely essential that we do give credit where it's due uh, in that there were some horrible projections about what could happen in prisons unless measures were taken. And the prison service um, introduced the restricted regimes. And you're absolutely right that at the beginning, certainly, uh, prisoners accepted this, they understood it, there was a sense of we're all in this together. They could see what was happening in the community. Uh, and um, despite the harshness of the restrictions, um, they, they, they understood it all and, and were content for what was happening. That started to change um, as the summer went on and as things started easing in the community. There was it, Prisoners found it harder to understand why things were so slow to start changing uh, in prisons, particularly around time out of cell, getting out of cells for more than an hour a day, that sort of thing, and the complete suspension of social visits. Uh, and even when social visits were reintroduced in a limited way, the conditions uh, that they were held in were such that uh, a lot of prisoners told us that they weren't going to subject their families to what they perceived to be more distressing and not coming at all, not being able to touch their children, no no play area, no creche, um, sometimes behind screens, uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, what we saw as the summer moved on was that actually the... Um, concerns, worry, distress was beginning to grow. Clearly, well-being was suffering. Uh, and although the most acute issues of mental health seemed to be being dealt with, what we were very clearly picking up from the establishments we went to, and um, we, we've been to quite a lot now throughout the summer, is that it's wearing prisoners down uh, and, and um, their, their, their mental health and well-being is suffering. Mm. And how much worry does that give you? I know you've sort of now ended the job and Charlie Taylor will now be taking over, but how do you sort of see this playing out? Because we know that, you know, the service is underfunded. It's sort of been fairly underloved um, over the years. That's no secret. Um, and it was pretty bad before. So where on earth do we go from here? Uh, well, it's a, that's a very good and very difficult question. I'm quite clear what it shouldn't look like. Um, you have heard the narrative that's being put forward that actually restricted regimes uh, has, rest uh, has had the effect of restoring order and that prisons are now safer places, there's less violence, less self-harm, uh, so on and so forth. Well, that may well have been the case in, 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 the, in the very beginning of, 
of the um, restricted regimes. But what we're seeing, or what we've been seeing in prisons throughout the summer as time goes on, doesn't bear that out. Um, and particularly in women's prisons, that um, there's some real concerns, obviously, about the already high levels of self-harm um, going up even more. Uh, but I think that's just a completely negative narrative, um, this thing that uh, you know, lock people in their cells for 23 hours a day and um, that, that's fine because places are safer. It, it's all part of the vicious circle of, of, of tightening restrictions and, as being the only uh, answer to violence and so on. There's, you've got to break into that, in my view, and start thinking about how to loosen things and, and get people to start behaving in a pro-social way. And, I, and I've said to ministers and to others, you know, it cannot be right that the only way to run a safe establishment uh, is to have people locked in their cells ad infinitum for 22, 23 hours a day. Well, no, because I think also when you look at the staff, you know, there's a lot of really capable, brilliant staff who go into the service in order to make a difference. And actually... By saying, well, that's the way we're going to run prisons, by locking everyone down for longer, actually then sort of is quite um, offensive to the staff in a way because a lot of them are more skilled than that and a lot of them could be more skilled than that and, and could do a better job if, you know, if, if that was the case. And actually just to say, well, you know, because you don't really need very skilled staff just to lock people in their cells and throw them a bit of food every now and again. I mean, you know... It sort of sounds a bit like a zookeeper. Well, that, I think that's a, 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 absolutely right. And we've seen a lot of staff who have been immensely frustrated by the slowness in which um, things uh, have been moving forward. Um, exactly as you say, they do. They, they want to do better than that. You know, they don't regard themselves as turnkeys, and they're not. They're far more skilled than that. Um, and they want to be able to do their very best for the, for the, for the prisoners in their care. But they can't at the moment. Um, and, and they are very, very uh, frustrated. Uh, we saw that in the children's estate when, uh, at the very beginning, all face-to-face -face education was stopped. Now, some of the um, governors and directors of YOIs were quite sure that they could deliver some education in a safe way at that time, but they were prevented from doing so. Um, and I think it's part of the function of the uh, the YCS being treated as a, as a subset of the adult estate. Um, it, it 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 needs to be dealt with entirely differently and entirely separately. You know, they're not adult prisons. They're, they've got children in them who are still maturing. And you know, many of them now have been for six, seven months or more uh, subject to well over 20 hours a day in their cells. And that cannot be right. It's sort of inconceivable, really, isn't it? And if, you know, for our listeners, you know, we either... People will either have teenagers or will know teenagers and young people. And the one thing that they really, really need is room to move and, you know, at the very least, exercise. You know, they need so much exercise. They need good food. I mean, it's just, yeah, it doesn't really bear thinking about. And it's something that makes me incredibly angry um, because there's so little movement on it. It, it is appalling. But uh, you, you, your broader question, you know, what's the way forward? I've always steered clear of the numbers uh, debate because I think that's a, a political and a policy issue. Um, you know, it, how many people are it's deemed appropriate to hold in custody is, is a matter for sentencing policy and for political judgment. All I have always said and will, will continue to say if asked is that however many people it's felt appropriate to lock up, um, they should be held in, in, in conditions which are safe and decent 
and give the opportunity to those who wish to do so to turn their lives around to um, do productive things and give and have the opportunity to come back into the community um, as fully contributing members. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that every single person in prison is has that aspiration, um, but I do think that every single prisoner should at least have the opportunity to do so, should they wish to do so, and at the moment they don't, and that's quite clear. Exactly, because what's happening now really sits at odds with that aspiration, doesn't it? Um, out of interest, uh, I've noticed that recently there's a, been a bit of a debate going on in the political policy circles about the age of criminal responsibility in our country, which of course is uh, 10 years old, which is very, very low. What's your view on the age of criminal responsibility? Well, that's, that's an interesting one, Edwina. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to pass if you'd like. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm tempted to pass on that one. Um, I, I'm not fully across all the research that's been put into it, but I must admit I've come across very, very few people uh, children um, of that age who have come full tilt into the criminal justice system, and normally, you know, both in this, in this life as inspector of prisons and in my previous life uh, as a police officer, every effort was normally made to try to keep uh, children of that age out of the criminal justice system, and I think that's important. You know that that um, as long as the, 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 the interventions that are available in the community are actually effective, then let's, if we can, keep children out of the, the, the system as long as we can. So circling back to the staff, the prison staff, just for a moment, um, I was interested to know whether the rates of staff burnout were going up because those numbers um, weren't looking good at all before COVID and were causing some concern. Um, how, how are they looking? Uh, the simple answer to that is I don't know. I haven't got the data no. uh, on that. I did notice that at the beginning of the COVID uh, pandemic that absenteeism rates were very high. And I can understand people were naturally concerned about going into prisons, uh, working there, not knowing what the future held, and particularly in the light of some of the very worrying projections about what could happen. And I think it was sort of eight and a half thousand plus at the height um, of this pandemic in the spring. Um, eight and a half thousand um, members of staff were absent each day. That dropped quite dramatically over the coming, over the following weeks and months. And uh, but it has been rising again of late. And uh, I know it's a, of a concern to the prison service um, as, to, as to what would happen. And of course, you know, recent outbreaks as well have, have, have contributed to that uh, as testing has become more available. So larger numbers of staff are having to isolate and so on. So yes, it's it's, it's a real concern inevitably. Prisons are people focused, are they not? Uh, you need people to, to run them and um, you need to have committed and healthy people to run them. Yeah, and I know there's many reasons why, you know, someone could end up suffering from burnout. But one thing I did learn over the years of um, sort of working with trauma and gender in prisons um, and, you know, particularly in the area of staff welfare and, and culture is that often people will suffer burnout when they're asked to operate against their moral code. And I thought that was a really fascinating concept, which kind of feeds into what we were saying a little bit earlier about people coming into the service thinking that it's going to be sort of human-centred and that, that they're going to be able to make a bit of a difference and actually they find out that the opposite is true. And certainly within my organisation, One Small Thing, we've had officers who've said, 
you know, the work that you've brought into this prison has been the golden thread that has helped us to stay in the service, which is great for me to hear, but sort of sad at the same time. Do you know, that's, that's really interesting because th that matches uh, some of the anecdotes I've heard in recent weeks and last couple of months from some of my colleagues at HMIP who have been into prisons and are saying almost exactly what you're saying there, that the, just being a turnkey, locking and unlocking, um, doesn't give the stimulus and interest uh, to, to members of staff who want to do so much better and more, uh, and it is exhausting them, it's draining them. Just the simple fact of locking and unlocking, because it is, is mundane and not what they want to do. So you've come to the end of your four years. Do you feel that there's any sort of work that was missed or um, things that you would have liked to have seen done or any more progress that you would have liked to have made? Uh, well, it's, 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 it's interesting to, to look back. You know, I think we... We, we did achieve quite a lot with, with the things such as the uh, urgent notification process and the independent reviews of progress um, and growing the size of the inspectorate with the support of the Justice Select Committee. I think we have achieved a lot. I think we've done some very good thematic work. The bit that's missing um, and the bit that's troubling me or has troubled me is it's the follow up. We, we, to reports and recommendations and thematic work that we've done. We've done a certain amount. Um, but we can only do so much because we are a very small body. You know, who's actually checking what is going on in response? I sometimes feel that the inspectorate, by default, uh, has had to act as part of the line management of the prison service, which is not its role at all. Um, when we go and point out things that really should be better or should be better run, or that hideously low numbers of our recommendations have been picked up from previous inspections. I'm driven to ask the question, well, why is it us that's having to say this? What's happened to the line management of the prison service who profess to take our reports and recommendations seriously, but then all too often we find that they've just been sitting on a shelf somewhere? Um, there was a period when... Uh, it felt almost as if they were, were trying to push back uh, against some of our worst findings, uh, particularly around the urgent notification uh, establishments, uh, when they increased the use of so-called special measures. Um, and what we found actually was that, the, the, again, these were looking at process and data rather than what was actually happening in terms of uh, outcomes for prisoners. Uh, and several of the establishments that have been put into special measures, um, and you could say, I hope not too cynically, that they were, that was done in order to run interference across us, um, had actually gone backwards in performance while under special measures. That, that's now stopped, I hope. Uh, I hope it's been realised that that's a nugatory exercise, that they, that they are looking at other ways of doing it. Uh, and as I said to my team, when I was saying goodbye to them a couple of weeks ago, I hope we have now slayed, slayed the beast of special measures. Um, they achieved absolutely nothing. So I think it's a long way of saying we're almost filling a gap uh, in, in, in something in the prison service that should be happening for themselves, which is checking progress and looking at the right things, what's actually happening to prisoners as opposed to what the data says uh, is, is being done in terms of uh, internal processes.
And just say that was to be followed up with and done, just imagine, whose sort of job would that be? Would you see that sitting with the sort of regional directors or is it the governors themselves or is it both? I think it it could well be uh, a role for regional directors or or the prison group directors, certainly. Um, But right from the top, um, every every organisation has an audit and risk committee, and nowadays the audit, audit committees don't just look at numbers and pound pound signs and things. They look at all the other risks that are associated with running big complex organisations, operational risks, reputational risks, and so on. Um, there ought to be a drive from the top, uh, coming from that from that sort of direction, up from board level uh, and board committee level. Um, but then that they ought to be requiring, in my view, all the layers of middle management to actually add value, go in and, 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 and really test what is actually happening in prisons. There's so, so often a gap. We saw this in Liverpool in 2017. The prison was reporting up that it was going to achieve 70, 75% of the inspectorate recommendations since the previous inspection. That was in May 2017. When we actually went there in September 2017, we found they had achieved about 20-odd percent. So, you know, what's happening there? Why did they not know what was going on in that prison? Same in in Birmingham in um, 2018. Remember the uh, disastrous um, events there, where it seemed that for some six months there was arguments wrangling over um, contractual terms between HMPPS and G4S. Meanwhile, outcomes for prisoners were sinking to uh, incredibly low levels. Uh, when I went on the Today programme and said that I couldn't understand how this had happened and it seemed that if someone must have been asleep at the wheel, uh, that provoked complete outrage uh, from the top of the prison service. You know, we knew about it all along. Well, if you knew about it, why didn't you do something about it? Well, exactly. So something about just getting that qualitative um, element of leadership and management, uh, make that a mainstream activity, as well as looking at the data. And do you think um, actually it would be helpful instead of maybe sort of, you know, using some of this to... um, beat people over the heads with actually there could be and maybe there is an incentives sort of element to the inspectorate so that actually people sort of it it it's it sort of turned into something a bit more positive instead of because I often hear governors going oh god you know I haven't replied to your email like everything's collapsed because the inspectors are coming in and everyone goes into a sort of flat panic um if it was kind of like if a governor had the incentive that if they reached you know X percent of uh, turning the negative to the positive, say, that um, I don't know um, whether it could be a financial reward for that particular prison or whether just something more positive. Well, I, 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 I think that's absolutely right, that, that, that there is scope for, for, for doing more of that. I, I was always very encouraged by those governors who regarded a, the visit of the inspectorate uh, as an opportunity for a bit of free consultancy. Right. Uh, and they they were tended to be the best, the most innovative, the most imaginative, and the most open governors. Um, the, the more problematic places where, were where I found a culture which um, I've described before um, as, as reminding me of the culture of the police service that I joined in the 1970s. Um, and it doesn't only... Um, 
apply to some governors, but it does go further up the chain as well. A culture which is very defensive, uh, which is certainly uh, focused on process rather than outcomes, uh, which is quite resentful of external scrutiny, um, and, and which leads to quite a, a high level of introspection at a sort of organisational level. And I suppose this, this, at that, to an extent that's inevitable. It's a difficult operational environment, which not many people know much about because it is behind walls. Um, and so there's there's always a tendency to sort of look inwards rather than outwards. And I think, I think you know, the, the best parts of the prison service are those parts which can look outwards and those individuals who do look outwards. The worst bits are those who turn inwards and just say, you don't understand the difficulties of what we're doing, go away. Would you have any words of advice for your successor, Charlie Taylor? Um, I, I, I've told him uh, that I think you know he's hugely lucky to be taking on a role which is important with a fabulous group of colleagues um, and, and that it's an area which should grow more and more in importance and have more and more impact in the future. You know, as I said, we're not an NGO, um, but I think uh, the Inspectorate is an important body that has a huge role to play. Uh, and in particular, getting getting the truth to the top of the, the tree, as it were. I, I've, I've said to ministers and others, look, you know, good news doesn't travel um, easily downhill, but and bad news doesn't travel uphill very well. So please stop relying on global data aggregated to the point where it's meaningless. Um, start looking much more at what is happening at a local level. And that's what I think is absolutely key for the inspectorate to go into individual establishments and say, look, this is the truth of what's going on uh, and, and pointing that out. And during the COVID era, um, our inspection or scrutiny visit at Earlstoke in August um, was a shocker. Um, what we found there was was utterly appalling, slopping out people with social care needs not being, we had to make six safeguarding referrals ourselves while we were there. Uh, and this is supposed to be at a time when prisons were being run to incredibly strict rules and regulations uh, as a result of the pandemic. I just simply could not understand how it was that that was allowed to happen. I was told, oh, well, the governor was away on leave. Well, so what? <laughs> well, it, yes, exactly. So what? And but then sort of going further up the chain, if you aren't getting the answers that you need from the sort of civil service ministry of justice level, what do the politicians say? Well, po politicians are dependent upon what they're told, aren't they? Yes. We, we, we all know that when ministers go to a prison, they're not going to be shown the, you know, the filthy segregation unit if it is filthy. No, but then you go to them, which is crucial, and you tell them. Then what do they say? Uh, oh, they say. <laughs> Sorry, I've got something slightly more important to be dealing with. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is. You know, people never like to brief bad news upwards, do they? No, but I think in the in the prison world, in the criminal justice world, there's not much choice. I, I, I think it's a responsibility on those running the organisations to be utterly truthful and candid. But I'm, I'm, I'm not sure they know themselves because, for instance, during the COVID pandemic, I've been pushing. Um, for more granular information about what's happening in prisons. Here, we were told 122 prisons have now started offering social visits. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a fine headline figure. But when you actually go in to the establishments and, f and look for what is actually happening, 
At Elstoke, for instance, on one day, there were 28 visit slots and only one of them was taken up. Uh, it's simply, there's a complete mismatch very often between what we see at the working level and, and what comes out the top of the system um, in, in terms of global data. It doesn't convey the actual pictures. Again, the minister recently wrote about purple visits and the video visits. Um, that uh, 24,000 of these visits are now being completed. Well, that sounds great, except when you start working that out, uh, the, between 80,000 prisoners, 24,000 visits over a four-month period, a sort of one in three prisoners has had one call over three months or so. It begins yeah. to look a little less rosy. Absolutely. Well, what does life hold for you now, Peter, now that you finally managed to retire? <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's a very good question. Uh, it's not the first time in my life I've retired from something. Um, I, simple answer is I, 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 I don't know. Um, you know, I've probably finished with full-time work now, but uh, if, if other things come along that are interesting or where I think I can make a contribution, um, uh, I, I should look very carefully at them. Uh, it's certainly not pipe and slippers time. No, not quite yet. Well, Peter, thank you so much. I really appreciate your reflections on on your time as chief inspector and it was um great getting to know you and some of your team over that time as well actually on a personal level and um the work that my organization and your team sort of did together um so thank you well th well thank you and um, you, you, when you kindly came to our development day and spoke to us about your work that that had a, a real impact on a lot of the colleagues and it certainly had a big impact uh, on the thinking around the redesign and the review of the expectations for women's prisons. So, you know, if there's ever an example of, 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 of actually having an impact through what it is we expect to see in prisons, um, driven by you know, really cutting-edge thinking and so on, that, that's, uh, that's a great example of it. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed. That means a lot. And good luck um, with your next chapter. I forgave because I was tired of being in pain. Welcome to The F Word, a podcast series that examines, excavates, unpicks and reframes forgiveness through the lives of others. I'm Marina Cantacasino, a journalist from London, founder of the Forgiveness Project charity, and I've built my career investigating how those who face the most complex and devastating things in life find a way through. I'll be talking fortnightly to a guest who's experienced something very difficult or traumatic in their life, but who rather than respond with hate or bitterness, has embraced, or at the very least considered, forgiveness as a response to pain. The F Word podcast is available now. Please join us to dig deeper into this messy, complex, intriguing subject of forgiveness. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.